happy Friday. Um, happy blowout jobs number. Um, the caterwauling for an upcoming recession. Those people keep getting doused with a dose of economic reality. And uh, it does not seem like barring some large existential event, war, large-scale terrorist event, something like that, uh, we're going to be in any kind of recession anytime soon. Uh, the best part about the jobs report, obviously, wasn't the fact that it was a huge number and the lowest unemployment rate since 1969, uh, but temp help is rising again. And for those of you who have been here for a long time, you know temp help tends to lead the overall employment numbers by about six, six to eight to nine months. So if temp help is rising, then we are going to get a scenario where we get further employment gains in the future. And I don't know about you, but I do not remember the last recession we had with rising employment. Usually employment is an indicator of recession. It starts to fall prior to recession. The actual recession is still starting. Um, and that's just not happening right now. It's not even close to happening. So um, we can continue to discount much of the bear case as it tends to be mostly focused on, um, you know, I think everyone's trying to be the next uh, Burry and those guys that predicted the housing crisis and predicted this recession because if you can predict a recession, you get a lot of TV time. I think you, the unfortunate side effect of that is you get too many people predicting recessions. And they're just not right. They're just wrong. And it's just the data. There's no single data point that I can find that is indicative of a recession or an upcoming recession or an impending one. There's just nothing I can find. So until that happens, you know, the bears will get their TV time still and they'll say what they want to say and it's one of those things you could kind of look at that the more convoluted the argument, the less likely it is to happen. You know, the housing argument was pretty simple. Um, in retrospect, it was simple. No one bothered to look into it. Only a few people did. Everyone's making too much money. Um, but in retrospect, it was pretty simple, right? You had... 11 months of, of home inventory, six months of equilibrium, and you had rising prices. That shouldn't have happened. You had loans being written to anyone with a pulse. That should never happen. And you had people owning three or four homes that had no way to support those homes that were simply buying the homes to flip them, not to live in them. You know, houses became stocks and bonds, not a, an asset to live in in that time period. There's nothing like that happening now in any markets that I can find. So... Anyway, that's enough of that. All right, here are the questions this week. My follow-up question is what happens if this... Oh, and uh, everyone seems to like the new mic. Um, if you do have a comment on it, please go ahead and leave it. Um, I got a bunch back, and they said the sound was much better. It's just easier to hear, so I'm happy for that. Um, my follow-up question is what happens if the Supreme Court takes it and we get an unfavorable decision, let's say, next June? Do the preferreds and commas that basically go to zero? No, they don't go to zero. 
And it depends what the not, what it depends what the Supreme Court decides they're going to rule on. You know, they may just rule that um, the conservatorship was legal and not touch the network sweeps. It all, it all depends. Um, but at the end of the day, those equities still trade and they'll still be have they'll still have value. The preferreds won't get wiped out if the network sweep is deemed valid. They'll still have to settle with shareholders in other cases and other courts. So there's still a lot that can happen. I think the, the probability of a very bad outcome is shrinking by the day, given what's happening in other court cases. Hi, Todd. My question is, why do all preferred series have to be treated the same? Why couldn't they convert the high coupon securities and leave the low ones alone? For example, Freddie 50 FMCCM is variable based on the two-year CMT rate, which is about 1, 1.6%. Seems really stupid to convert to equity with such a low coupon. If it's not converted, who is going to be who is going to pay par for a one point six percent yield? Well, you can't. All of the convertibles are in some way or form convertible at some point in time. They're all kind of different. There may be some that aren't convertible. Actually, now that I think about it, um, but they are for the most part. And you know, some every five years, some two years, some different dates and things like that. You can't, you can't, every, every, if everything's going to be converted, they're going to be converted outside of the normal conversion cycle, right? And then you can't pick and choose who gets converted and who doesn't because it's being done as part of a settlement of a lawsuit or a agreement to drop a lawsuit or because they're forced to because they lose a lawsuit. You can't then treat defendants differently. All defendants get treated the same. Now, you say, for instance, if this was a class action of cigarette smoking, uh, you couldn't give, you know, someone who died five years ago less money than someone died two years ago because of lung cancer. It's probably not the best example, but I think you get the point. Um, so the preferred shareholders have to be treated the same. Whatever, whatever that agreement is, it has to be done the same because don't forget they need two thirds of convertible shareholders to uh, to do the to do the settlement to drop it right. They need two thirds vote from from convertible from the preferred genius Christ from the junior preferred shareholders to approve a settlement. Well, if you're only doing half of them, you're not going to get that. So you have to do a global settlement that treats everyone equal, so you get the vote that you need. Um, interesting theory on HHC. Where do you think he could buy it and get a deal done, and how would he finance it? There are obvious conflicts of interest that would have to be mitigated. Given his experience with Allergen Valiant, how likely is that he attempts an arms-length transaction here, and if not a buyout, what's the purpose of this filing? See, that's what I can't figure out, the last sentence there. What's the purpose of the filing? So he went from 3 to 15% in, um, in, uh, stake in the company, right? And I don't admit, so if you didn't read the post, it's just a theory I have, but it's not based on any knowledge. It's not based on talking to anyone or anything like that. As far as I know, I'm the only one that has this theory. Ackman is a long-time fan of Warren Buffett and everything Warren does. Um, you know, when Whitney Tilson, if you don't know who he is, he runs a, ran a small hedge fund. I think it's a family office now. When Whitney Tilson went to Harvard Law School, Harvard Business School, um, I think it was a year behind Bill or it was this time Bill was, whatever. Whitney Tulsa wanted to get into investing and said, what should I do? And Eckwood said, go read everything Warren Buffett has ever written. Um, we know that the whole reason for the Pershing Square International, the company he listed in um, um, 
uh, I think it was the Netherlands or something like that. The whole reason for doing that was for permanent capital, like what Buffett has, so that he was not subject to the whims of investor withdrawals and having to sell positions he didn't want to sell or liquidate stuff he don't liquidate because he was facing investor withdrawals for whatever reasons, you know, recession, people just are switching money like crazy or whatever. Um, he wanted permanent capital. And that was the whole reason for setting that up. Now, what Buffett did with his permanent capital is Buffett first invested in stocks and bonds and then just began buying businesses. Right? And then he invested cash flows from those businesses. So if you think about it, he's got 15% of HHC. Now, what is HHC? HHC is a land development company and an uh, 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 asset operating company. Right? They produce NRI, like a REIT but they're in a C-corp structure. We're getting to the point with HHC that unless they do some sort of dramatic corporate deal or they you know, spin off to the REIT division or something, we're looking at an asset that may always trade at slight discount to its true value because it's so misunderstood. It's so It doesn't fit neatly into a box. And Wall Street hates anything that doesn't fit neatly into a box. They just hate it. The REIT guys don't cover it. The business development guys don't cover it because it's just, it's neither one. It's kind of both. So very few people actually cover it. So maybe it's better off in private hands. Now, a lot of the people who looked at it didn't buy it because it's such a long held asset to, to get, you know, I mean, it's a development company to REIT that you couldn't just buy it and sell part of it. It kind of needs to stay on its own. Well, if, if you built a vehicle that is going to have permanent capital, like an investment vehicle, would not HHC fit in there nicely? They're already generating more NOI than they need to run the company, which is why they're doing the share buybacks. That amount of NOI is going to continue to grow annually. It should be $250, $270 million when the seaport's done, closer to $300 million, $300 million annually. Well, if you're Ackman and you have a vehicle that's a permanent capital vehicle, wouldn't that fit nicely in there? You have this asset. It's got 20, 30 years of development in front of it. So it's going to keep increasing its NOI every year, which that NOI is the money that you are then able to reinvest in other things, kind of like Buffett is insurance float, right? It's the same sort of thing. It has tax advantages in that you know, they still have NOLs. And because of the upfront depreciation on their developments, they're not going to be a federal taxpayer for a very long time. So you also, so by buying that, you also give your investment vehicle some tax benefits, as well as a annually increasing flow of funds to reinvest. And it doesn't require anything. It's self-funding. It's self-going. Management's already there. You could just tuck it right into Pershing and just reinvest it, just like Buffett's doing. And I've always thought that the ultimate deal for Aquin is to create a Buffett-like vehicle. And, and this is, might be a chance to do it. No one knows this asset better than him. I mean, he created it, basically, from the GGP Chapter 11. I think it would fit perfectly within a vehicle like what he created. I mean, if you look down the road, he could be, you know, generating $500, $600 million a year for him to reinvest in his, in his, in, in a Pershing Persian. And it's just a theory. I have no reason to see it's true. I'm just trying to figure out why he took his ownership percentage up so high. 
and what he's going to talk. He's chairman of the board, so there are some conflicts there. He may have to step down from the board. I mean, he's gone activist on his. He's going activist in his own company. That he's a chairman of the board on. Usually, when that happens, usually it's like a, an LBO, right? Management buys it out, or he takes a stake up to fifty percent or something. In which case, he probably have to consolidate it in his books anyway. So I don't know. I don't. I don't know, but I don't think he's just doing it because he thinks the stock's worth twenty, thirty dollars more. I think there's a much bigger plan here. Um, and I think it would be a nice opportunity for him to create something like, like Buffett did. So that's. That's that's my theory on it. I mean, it's just a theory. I could be a thousand percent wrong. I have no idea. But um, I don't think it sounds crazy. And it was it was funny. I was having a conversation with someone today. It was in the investment world in New York, and um, <laughs> and I said the same thing to him. I go, you know, I go, I'm like I might be completely wrong, but I don't think it's a crazy idea. And he replied, Jesus Christ, I've heard way crazier than that in the last 20 years. <laughs> and the way he said it was pretty funny. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. But I think I think it would be a neat thing. Um, obviously, we'd all make money because you'd have to buy it at a premium from here. Um, you know, who knows how it could be structured? Straight buyout or just fold it in? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see, though. Um, number four, definitely looking forward to the Cannabis Podcast, if that's on tap. It is on tap, and I do apologize. I had, you know, I, a couple weeks ago, I started talking about it, and I've just been so, with the holidays, I've been so busy and um, incredibly busy with that part of it that I haven't really had time to sit down and and do that, but um, I, I promise I will have that up next week. Um, so... And it'll be a it'll be a separate podcast to this. So for those of you who have no interest whatsoever, you won't have to listen to it. For those of you who do can listen to it. I'm not going to mix the two together. Um, so why don't we do this? If you have if you have any specific things you want me to answer about it, uh, specific things you don't know or want to know or questions or whatever, go ahead and send me those emails too, and just put cannabis in the um, in the subject line. And I'll keep track of all those questions, and I'll make sure that as I go through what I'm talking about with it that I will answer your questions specifically so that no one's sort of like, oh, I wish you talked about that. So um, so let's say I'll do both podcasts on Friday next week. So have your questions in by, you know, if you could do it by Thursday, it'd be a lot easier. So they're going to be doing two. Um, I just want to make sure I have everything organized so don't miss everything. So get your questions in by Thursday for the cannabis-specific podcast, uh, and I will do it next week. So next week looks like... Um, I'm going to have more time and um, I can do it. I just, you know, I just didn't want to do it and, and not do a decent job at it. So uh, thinking about new ideas for 2020, have you looked at shipping stocks, specifically product tankers? No, I haven't. And, you know, I've looked at shipping stocks in the past and there's just no stability in those things. They always look cheap and then one will run up. And then it'll just crash back down. And, you know, I, I've almost gotten into them, a, into them a few times in the past, but I kind of look at them like airlines. And 
I'm of the opinion that in the next year or so, we're going to, we might see might begin to see significantly higher or higher oil prices, and that would be a massive blow to the shipping industry. So I just there's just so many things that make shipping so hard. So they're in, intimately tied to trade. Energy prices really affect them. You know, just geopolitics all over the place, and and there's a large oversupply of tankers out there. So I just. I just don't, I know too many people have gotten burned on cheap stocks, on cheap shipping stocks that were by every measure very cheap and just stayed that way for years or went down even value and more. So I haven't looked at them and I specifically try and stay away from them because, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like retail for me. You know, I've had, I've had some really nice wins in retail but I've had more sort of blah to shit outcomes, you know? A couple have worked really well, but for the most part, I just haven't done really well in retail. And, you know, retail's just, it's a bitch. It really is. And I just, so I, I try to stay away from it right now. This, unless there's something that's just so blatantly obvious, um, you know, I just... I guess the problem with retail is, is like everyone has opinions of what they can do to fix the evaluation in the, in the store, uh, a, a, a misvaluation of the stock price. And you're always, okay, if they just do A, B, and C, then they'll take care of it. And, you know, and then they do A and B, but not C, and then the stock tanks because C was really what they had to do. It's just, just and, and it just, you know, it just seems to be like a revolving door at management. There's no, I don't know, I just... I've I've had I've been burned too many times in in uh, in retail stocks to really um, to really get involved with one of them again unless it's just a situation where you know it's just stupid and I guess you could even say in a way Callaway is becoming a retail stock I mean they're getting more and more into the specialty clothing line athletic clothing lines and things like that and that makes me nervous but the fact that Nike dropped out of the golf apparel. Um, that left a huge void that only Callaway was really prepared to fill. You know, Adidas didn't fill it. So um, that was sort of an obvious one to me when one of your major competitors decides I'm not going to do something anymore. Um, you know, that market share opened up and it looks based on the results and based on the numbers that Callaway just is absorbing that market share, um, which is fine. And we still have the top golf aspect of it. And, you know, despite what people were saying two or three years ago, golf is coming back. Uh, the last three or four years, every, more people have golfed every year. Just you know, it's it's slow growth, but golf is growing, and that doesn't even count the number of people who are golfing uh, at Top Golf and uh, places like that. If you add those, then golf participation is really starting to jump. And what they're finding out is they're getting a. It's intimidating to be a beginner golfer and go play nine holes or eighteen holes, right? But it's not intimidating to be a beginner golfer and go to a a Top Golf and sit on the couch and hit some balls and have some fun with your friends. And then, you know, a couple weeks later, yeah, I'm going to go to the course now. Now that I've, I've played all these games here, and they're finding that there's a transition from younger players from top to tough cops. And uh, there's, I forget the other ones are called. There's a couple other ones. Uh, par 1, I think, or 4-1, something like that. Um, uh, there's become a, um, a a transition for people going from there than to, to becoming new golfers. And it's helping the game of golf. So, um 
I don't even know where I'm going. Oh, but that's why I'm still holding Callaway because all of Callaway's metrics are favorable in their macro environments and then their execute. I mean, just Chip Brewer's probably one of the best CEOs in America and he's without doubt the best CEO in the golf game. I mean, we've, we've made money in this guy. We made a lot of money with him at Adams Golf and we've made a lot of money with him at Callaway. And if he leaves Callaway and goes someplace else, we'd be foolish not to invest in there. The guy just keeps making money in the golf game. No matter no matter what happens to golf, he makes money for shareholders. So he's just an amazing. He just knows what he's doing. Um, so ideas for twenty twenty. I have. I don't have any. I don't do sort of. A, it's a new year. Let's look at new things because I just I see the trends in what we're doing. I do think twenty twenty is going to be a big year for oil. There was a presentation that I put on the blog yesterday but the bull case for oil and it's an hour long but I hope you guys watch it um the guy who did it uh went through a presentation put together an hour long presentation on why he thinks oil is going up um and could go significantly higher and based on the valuation of the stocks in that sectors um you know they're, they're trading at 20-30% of their historical valuations with oil in the 50s um, because they're focused on cash flow now, CapEx has collapsed. So there's a lot of things setting up that conventional wells, you know, conventional drilling is is starting to slow down. It's been no, there's been no um, investment in deep water wells and conventional. It's all shale basically, which is the main, the driver of the increase in oil production. So there's been some, there's a lot of things setting up right that could lead to a major um, spike in oil prices. And he even talks about some of the bear cases of people talking electric vehicles. And, you know, not many people know, but electric vehicle demand in China is collapsing. And we're talking down 30, 40% year over year. It's utterly collapsing. Growth in the U.S., you know, other than Tesla, which is starting, which is slowing, it's been kind of flat. But, you know, the one area that is still growing year over year, SUVs. SUVs used to be 18% of vehicles sold in the U.S. They're, they're approaching 40% now. The amount of gas used in those SUVs offsets every, uh, offsets the savings from every, uh, electric vehicle in the U.S., and then some. So there's there's no fall in demand. Gasoline demand is still rising year over year. So let, it, that is enough proof that electric vehicles aren't making a dent in the oil and, and, and gasoline. It's just data. If, if electric vehicles are making a dent, gasoline sales will be falling. Gasoline sales and oil, oil gas demand and oil demand is continuing to grow year over year. Why? Americans are driving bigger cars. They just are. It's and again, that's just that's a fact. It's not an opinion. It's a fact. SUV sales and tr- SUV and truck sales are continuing to dominate the market, and they're a growing share every single year. And you go from thirty-five miles a gallon down to you know my suburban was fourteen to eighteen miles a gallon, and. That the, you just that's gonna keep demand going. 
So, but I, it, I mean, whether you believe it or not, it was a very well done presentation. He went to his bull case, then he looked at the bear cases and, and said why he thought those bear cases were wrong. So it wasn't a one-sided, this is what I think. It was a, here's what I think, here's what the other side thinks, here's what I think the other side is wrong, or here's what I think the other side is missing. And then he went through it. So it, it's worth, and there were some other things in there about, um, you know, he did, did a lot with uh, historical valuations of oil at certain prices. And, you know, he talked about what we talk about, how oil is about 5 million barrels below the five-year average for supply. Um, couple that with the dramatic fall in CapEx we've seen in, in the oil and gas drilling sector. You're setting yourself up for an era of shortages, not the quote-unquote, you know, a, a perpetual abundance people think we have now. And that mindset switches pretty quick. And when it does, the very fundamentals of the oil market, you could see oil in the 70s based on just the situation we have now. It's, it's just all optics and why it's trading in the 50s right now. If this was 10 years ago and we were 5 million barrels with a five-year average, oil would have been at 80 bucks because people thought we were running out of oil. Now people think we're going to have too much forever, which again is false. Oil, goes from, oil thought goes from one extreme to the other. We're either in peak oil or permanent glut. There's never a middle of the road with oil. Right now, the mindset is permanent glut. And people realize it's not true. And they look at the fundamentals. You can see, boom, oil price shoot up higher. You can see companies like Kinder Morgan yielding 6% go to 30 bucks a share. Williams go to 35 or 40. And this is just based on historical valuations where these tip companies have typically traded in the past. Not even based on you know, any sort of new paradigm. This is just getting back to where, you know, when the oil fundamentals were this, this is where these stocks tended to trade. Right now, they're trading at a fraction of where they used to trade at. So I think that's where, the, I still think there's huge value there. It's obviously, one could argue we were really early. I mean, we're still doing, I mean, you know, a lot of our Kinder Morgan stuff we bought when the price went down, we are doing well. Same thing with um, Williams. And honestly, we're making 5 6% a year in both right now, so... And I'm not, I'm not too angry about that. Um, I don't mind getting paid 6% a year to wait. Um, obviously, Chesapeake's going to have been a bit of a disaster, but I think they'll pull through. And Texas Pacific Land Trust, you know, they, they, their region of the Permian is the fastest growing region for drilling in the Permian, which, by the way, is home to 50% of the U.S. rigs and is really the only region in the U.S. right now that is growing in terms of production and rig count. Not necessarily Raycon because Raycon's falling a little bit, but production the Permian keeps going up, and it's really the only place in the U.S. right now that's going up. So you have the, the best acreage and the fastest growing region in the U.S. for oil, and that is a good place to be. So I think that gets rectified soon. Um, looks like the C, the C Corp thing is going to be a go. Um, so then it just remains to be seen if that's true, what changes we get, how things are restructured. Um and that could be very good too. Because if they're not a corporation, not a trust, I do believe they can start trading on exchanges, index funds, ETFs will start to have to grab them. And that's a lot of buying. So that would be good. Now, whether they have to do a stock split to you know, increase liquidity to do that, I mean, yeah, I mean, who knows? But again, at the end of the day, it's, that's irrelevant to me what they do as far as that goes. Um, but if, you know, if, they, if they can split the stock and increase the buying to get in the index funds, it'll be good for everyone. So, um, 
My question is behavioral finance. How do you control your emotions to be able to handle the ups and downs of the market? Having the proper temperament is extremely important as an investor. I've been a subscriber since 2010. Thanks to all you do for the literal investor. So Buffett had a great quote, and I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher it, but paraphrasing it, Buffett said, you know, if if intelligence was what it took to be a great investor, every scientist would be a billionaire. You know, the long-term capital, for those of you old enough to remember them in the 80s, that massive hedge fund that exploded. They had the Black Schultz guys on there. They were they were the smartest people in investing. And they blew up. Completely lost everything. And then some. Had to be bailed out by the Fed because their positions were leveraged so high that if they went down, they would have taken out some banks with them. Or brokers. I don't remember exactly what it was. So those were the smartest guys in the world in investing. And they went under. Buffett's always said that if you can control your emotions, you have the right temperament, you can be very you can do very good in the US stock market. And it's harder to do now than ever because I mean when I started investing, I would you would check your stocks the next morning in the newspaper. You didn't know what your stocks were doing during the day, unless you were calling your broker every 10 minutes and you would stop answering the phone. You had no idea. Some people didn't get a newspaper at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. The afternoon. Some people wouldn't know what their stocks did today until 3 or 4 o'clock tomorrow. There was no CNBC. There was no people screaming at you. There was no the web. The web has everyone telling you, oh, gold's down, this down, recession, da, da, da. There was none of that. There was none of that. People back then invested based on what was happening around them, Right? Was their community doing better? Was there prospering in the community? If things were going well, they were buying stocks and holding them. They invested by what they saw. They get a nightly paper, watch the nightly news for half an hour, and that was the extent of most people's news for the day. It's 24-7, 365 now, and that fucks a lot of people up. It really does. You can go on the internet right now and five... Find 10 people saying we're going to have Dow 35,000 and you can find 10 people saying Dow 15,000. They were going to a massive recession. Like, I mean, Gunlock was out there the day. Gunlock was out there. They say, you know, the likes we haven't seen, the U.S. won't be able to recover, blah, 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 blah. Investors 30, 30 years ago, not even that. 25 years ago, mid-90s, didn't have that shit. Well, they had CNBC, but... So what do you do? How do you how do you control your emotions and not get wrapped up in it? Number one, turn off the TV. Uh, you know, I, I I start watching the TV every now and then, and I will admit I find myself getting wrapped up in it. You know, because you have smart people out there telling you these dire things are going to happen. And you're like, oh, well, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's happening. Maybe it's going to happen, you know? And you start, I start getting on edge. It happens to everybody. You know, Buffett, Buffett has CNBC in his office, but he has a sound down. <laughs> He's not listening to anybody. He just has it on in case it's breaking news. Munger doesn't, read, doesn't listen to him at all. 
So at the end of the day, you have your, you have data. Data is emotionless. The interpretation of data is full of emotions. And people interpret data different ways to make the case they want to make. You can look at the same data and a bear will find bad things, a bull will find positive things. But you have your data and you have your company's financial performance that you're invested in. If you just follow the data, if you had just followed over the last last decade, if you had just followed employment, the chemical barometer, auto sales, temporary employment, just pick any pick a few of those. If you had just followed those, you would not have believed any recession call. Data itself doesn't lie. People twist data to get the outcome they want to get. But if you had just watched those things, keep going in the right direction. You know, all the stuff that Davidson posts, all those indicators that we follow, they've all been doing the same thing for the last decade. Now, the market's gone up and down. It's had its dramatic, you know, last December and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, if you draw, if you take a rule and draw that arrow, we're going from lower left to upper right. Now, we didn't get there in a straight line. But we're there. Fantastic gains over the last 10 years. And most of the stocks have done well too. It's really that simple. Just ignore, 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 you know, read. Read books and um, don't listen to people screaming at you on television. Because it's the, TV is there to sell. TV and newspapers exist to sell. And nothing sells like bad news. Nothing sells like anxiety. Sitting back and saying, you know what? Things are pretty good. And you know what? For the next six, eight months, do we don't see anything that's going to derail that? So we got at least six or eight months more and things are good. That's boring as hell. It happens to be true, but it's boring as hell. What sells is, oh, China's going to default and Hong Kong's going to go under and then that's going to have a ripple effect across the U.S. The Fed can't handle it and all this shit about the uh, repos, overnight repos, record highs, just financial systems crumbling. That sells. That gets eyeballs on the TV because nothing, nothing scares people more than dying or losing their money. Saying you're going to live another 40 years and the market's going to be fine for the next 10, that's boring as hell. People, people expect that. People expect to live longer. They expect the market to go up. So when you tell them it's not going to, their investors are going to lose money, they get nervous. They tune in. They react. And that's, that's the whole game of TV and, and the media. It's not necessarily about educating or, or helping people. So I ignore it as much as I can, and I focus on the data, and I focus on the fundamentals. The market's going to do what it's going to do. Volatility is not risk. Volatility is opportunity. If, you know, if, if we get another December like last year, it'll be buy, 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 buy. Because the fundamentals of the U.S. economy are strong. Do you remember the last time we had that recession when, when employment was rising at record rates? Do you remember that one? No, because it's never happened. Employment is a, a forward indicator. It starts falling or stalling out 
well before recessions, not during recessions. Think about it. The economy is going to 3%, then goes to 2 then goes to 1%, and then goes negative. Employment's falling along with it well before we actually get to the quote-unquote recession. When they date when it starts. Temporary help starts falling before a recession. Chemical activity barometer starts falling before a recession. It, it's, it, look at the charts we post. It, it's happened all, it happens all the time. What people like to do is scare you by predicting what's going to happen in the future. And, and I'll be honest, but, you know, predictions are just that, predictions. You know, it's just watch the fundamentals of the U.S. economy. That's your macro market. Then watch the companies you own. How are they performing? What are the numbers telling them? Listen to the conference calls. Read the conference calls. You know, it's a, it's a good exercise to read it first. And then listen to it. There's a lot that can be, you know, understood by tone and um, <clears throat> what's it called? Uh, intuition. Int- um, their speech, where they, they go with their speech. Um, but, you know, some guys are very rah, rah, rah. So it's good to read it first because you don't get that. And then go back and listen if you want. So, I mean, that, that's how I do it. I try to be as removed from the excitement and noise of, invest, of, of the market as I can. Because then it, it, it stops me from making stupid decisions. And, and you have to have in your head a game plan, right? You just can't buy a stock and say, okay, let's see what happens. Right? You have to say, this stock is going up because of A, B, C, D. In my opinion, it's going to go up because of A, B, C, and D. And then you monitor A, B, C, and D. And if, if they're accomplishing their goals towards A, B, C, and D, then eventually the stock's going to follow. I may not do it right away. It may go down. It may stay stagnant, stagnant, and then, you know, hockey stick to the north. We've had investments that have done that before. Or it may just climb in a gradual path. Who knows? But you have to have a game plan. of, And, and then you ignore everything else. Because as long as that game plan is being accomplished, then... They're going to do better. Their fundamentals will improve and their fundamentals will improve at the stock price. That's what happens. Everything else is just distractions. So I would just say understand why you're invested in a stock. And, you know, until that thesis is broken or until that thesis is proven wrong, you know, I stay in it. And sometimes it maybe I think that means I stay in a little too long. But you know, you can even you can even go back and look at some of the stuff we sold. And we sold too early. And we missed out a hell of an upside on a few things. But I mean that's that's the investing game. You know, sometimes we got out early, thank God. We got out and the stocks collapsed not so soon after, and sometimes you've gotten out and they've Going up under 30, 40% after. It, it happens all the time, but you just stick to your guns and stick to the reason you bought the stock until until you until that reason <clears throat> is either wrong or you know something else happens that you know something else comes up that wasn't in your original thesis, this you know, outlier variable comes into play and that kind of messes things up and then, then you get out. So that's how I do it. So um I think that is it. Let me do one. 
last question check here. Give me one second. Yeah, that is it for the questions. All right. So I hope everybody has a uh, absolutely fantastic weekend. I don't know what's doing where you live, but it's snowing here again. So we'll see. So have a great, safe weekend. And uh, send me the questions for the cannabis broadcasts, the headline cannabis, so I can keep them all separate from the other ones. And uh, next Friday, we'll have two podcasts to put up. And uh, I hope you like them. So have a great weekend, everyone.